Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For those of you who are panicking, we have two sermons today. It's not totally true. I just split it in half. My, my own wife was worried when I sat down and she said, you already preached your sermon this morning? And I said, no. She went, Ooh. So... <clears throat> So, happy Father's Day to me. All right. (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Now I'm getting the look. All right. 2 Corinthians 5. Hope in the presence of Christ. Hope in the presence of Christ. Of Christ. The last two weeks, we've, we've looked at heaven and considering heaven and considering the reality, the, the, just how incredible it is that one of the great truths, the, the greatest crowning jewel of heaven we consider heaven is that we will be with God. We will be with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We'll be with Him. An astounding truth for us to come away with. And if nothing else in this series, I think that's where we need to land. If, if nothing else, we need to know that heaven is about being with Jesus Christ. So this morning we think about what that means. What does it mean to have hope in the presence of Christ? Now I've learned two things in my life when we consider the trials of life that I've been through, the ups and downs, the difficult times. One, I don't like trials. That's just all there is to it. I'm not one that goes, man, I hope I'm going to have a difficult day this week. I don't like them. Number two, I've learned that God uses trials in my life to, to both reveal and to sharpen my true theology. He, he uses them to, to reveal and sharpen my true theology. Now, I say true theology because it's one thing to stand in front of you here and to proclaim theology. It's one thing to teach it. It's one thing to, to read it or to say, yeah, this is it. This is what I believe. We can all say that. It's another thing to actually live according to it, right? And so trials will often reveal what we truly believe in comparison to what we say we believe, and so just as a way of example, I've seen times in which God is, has used trials to reveal blind spots or deficiencies in my life, in my own theology, perhaps a deficiency in my belief, a low view of prayer, low view of God's sovereignty, His ability, His power, trials of life God has taken me through, has shown this to me at times, and times that I've not say I would look back and be proud of, but times in which I'm thankful for and God has worked in my life. And I've also seen times where God has taken me through trials and, and those trials serve to, to galvanize, to really solidify my theology, my belief, to, to stand, help me to stand firm and to stand and, and to have bolstered faith and strengthened hope in Him because of the trials that, that He has taken me through. And so, so I've learned those things about trials. Well, in 2 Corinthians, we look at the, the book, and we, we, we're just kind of jumping in there this week, but in, in 2 Corinthians 4, and really leading up into chapter 5, we have Paul speaking of trials that he's been through, speaking of the difficulties of life that God's taken him through, and we're really able to see here what, what galvanizes Paul's hope and galvanizes his faith through the trials of life. Here's what we're going to see this morning is that Paul's certain knowledge of his eternal inheritance in Christ grants him confident hope and courageous faith to live 
daily life in Christ. His certain knowledge, we're going to see those three, three things, certain knowledge, confident hope, and courageous faith. His certain knowledge and his internal, eternal inheritance in Christ grants him confident hope and courageous faith for daily living. So that's the, kind of the key truth this morning. Just put that out for you already, that our knowledge of our eternal inheritance in Christ grants us hope that we will one day be in the presence of Christ and it leads us to live lives of courageous faith in Christ. Hope in the presence of Christ. Let's read this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. For we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith. Not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There's a lot in this passage. We don't have time to hit everything, but I want us to consider this morning what it means to have hope in the presence of Christ. And if you just flip back and and look at chapter 4, when you look at chapter 4, you see starting really in verse 7, this this passage, a a pretty well-known passage there in verse 7 that Paul's describing having this treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power that belongs to God. Not to them, but it belongs to Him. And so he talks about all that he's been through, the, the persecutions, the times where he was crushed but not perplexed, driven to despair. He is afflicted in every way. He's persecuted but not forsaken. He was struck down but not destroyed. We see him conveying the reality that he has been through some of the greatest and most difficult trials of life. Look at what he says in verse four, or chapter 4, verse 14. He, 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 he makes this statement. He knows that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Christ and bring us into his presence. And so in the midst of the trials, it is the knowledge that he has that Christ will bring him into his presence, that we will once again rise with Christ and be in his presence that sustains him. Chapter 4, verse 17 and 18, there's a beautiful statement. He says, this light momentary affliction is preparing us for what? An eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the, thing, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. What we see Paul doing here 
is exactly what Paul exhorts the Colossian Christians to do in Colossians 3.1. You remember we began there, to set our minds on things above. That's exactly what Paul's doing. Through the midst of the trials of life, his mind is set above. It's set above. He looks to things of eternal nature. And so in verse 1 of chapter 5, he makes a declaration of belief, a a confession. He, He states his creed. He says, for we know... For we know, this is what I know. What do you know? What are you certain of? This is what Paul says, I know this. I'm certain of this very thing. What do you know? What are you certain of? What am I certain of? What are the things that I know? So listen, the Christian life is a life of certain knowledge about eternal things. It's certain knowledge that God has given us about eternal things. We don't know all the details. We don't know how everything's going to work out. We don't know the timing. But we know what God has given us to know. And we can be certain about that in Christ. So do you know what you believe? We need to draw down on exactly what it is that we believe so that we can have the confidence that that Paul has here in Christ. Paul says, we know. We know this. Do you know what you believe? Why you believe it? Do you study the Word? Are you a student of the Word? Do you wrestle with the hard questions of the faith? Or do you just kind of come in and come out? Listen, be entertained, and go about your way. Well, what does Paul know? What does he say we know? He knows. He he knows that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands to turn on the heavens. Now, this is important considering what Paul's been talking about. The afflictions, the trials, the difficulties of life, the times in which his life was almost gone. And he says, I know that this tent. It's a temporary dwelling. It's temporary. He's talking about his body, this temporary mortal body. If it's destroyed, he says what? I have a building, a house. You see the, the way it, it is described? It's described as a temporary tent, but then it is a building, a house. And this house is not made with human hands, is it? It's made by God, eternal in the heavens. It's a building from God. This is what he knows. He knows then that this life is not all there is. He knows that he's living for more than just today. He knows that the God who promised to go and prepare a place for him in John 14, he knows that that God is faithful to do what he said he would do. And so he says, listen, in the midst of all of this, in the midst of the fact that we've gone through all these trials, all these difficulties, we know this. We know that this body is just a tent. And God has prepared a house, a dwelling that is eternal. Now, why is this declaration of faith so important for Paul? Why is it so important for us? Look at verses 2 to 5. Why is it so important? He says, for in this tent, we groan. We groan. In this life, we, we suffer. In this life, we're, we're burdened. You, you sit here this morning and you know what this means. I don't really have to go on, do you? Do I? I mean, immediately when you hear, in this life we groan, I think everybody in here goes, yeah, we do. Life is hard. We meet the trials of life. Some of you are, are going through difficult decisions. You're going through difficult, difficult trials. You've had things come upon you or your family that you would have never chosen. 
You're struggling, perhaps struggling to wake up each day. You don't want to get up. You don't want to face the day. You don't want to see what tomorrow holds. You'd rather just stay right now. We're burdened. We groan. But it's in these days. It's in these days, in the midst of the burden, in the midst of the groaning, that our theology is revealed. And it's revealed here in Paul. We see his theology revealed. What is his confident hope? His confident hope is in verse 2 in this heavenly dwelling that he knows he has in Christ. For in this tent we groan longing what? To put on our heavenly dwelling. He's referring back to verse 1. He's longing for that. If you want a case study, just put your finger there. And a case study of this, a great example of what Paul's talking about is in Paul's own life in Philippians. So if you just flip over to Philippians 1, it was the, the verse we meditated on for, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When Paul writes the letter to the church at Philippi, he's writing from prison. And at the time he writes, he's uncertain about the outcome of his imprisonment. He doesn't know if he's going to live or if he's going to die. And so we have this case study of how a certain knowledge of our eternal inheritance in Christ gives us hope and courageous faith in the face of great trials or great tribulations. Look, look at, at Philippians 1, or, or listen with me, Philippians 1, 19. Again, he's writing from prison. He says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Now if we stop there, oh, Paul's confident he's going to get out of jail. He's confident he's going to be free, so he knows something. Well, maybe not. Verse 20, as it is, my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That's where we start going, wow, there's, there's some weight here, right? There's some weight. If you're here and you say, oh, I really value this whole standpoint of epistemology thing and you've got to experience it to know it and really to speak to it, well, you might want to listen up. Paul's speaking quite experientially here. He knows what he's talking about. Life's on the line. By life or death. Here we go. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now, now, Paul here, life and death right in front of him. But he didn't fear it. Why did he not fear it? Because he had a confidence in Christ. He knew who in whom he had believed. And so his perspective is, for to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That to me is important. That's Paul's perspective. He's saying, listen, the way I see it, the way I understand it, the way I know it, in my faith, for to me, to live is Christ. I want to serve him faithfully, but to die is gain. It's better. It's gain. What an incredible perspective. Is that my perspective? Is that how I approach life? Is that how you approach life? Do we approach life with that perspective that, you know, I'm going to live faithfully for Christ. If I die, it's gain because I'm going to be in the presence of Christ. Do we live with that perspective? I mean, in verse 23, 
Listen to what he says. He says, my desire is to depart and to be with Christ. For that is far better. It's far better. Paul doesn't strike me as someone who is so consumed with the stuff of this world that it overshadows clouds, eclipses the glory and the beauty of being in the presence of Christ. No, Paul knows that to be in the presence of Christ is far better than anything this world could offer. It's far better than anything this world could offer. I'm giving you a full dose of Thomas Watson today. Thomas Watson said about this, he said, A Christian's hope is not in this life. The best of a saint's comfort begins when his life ends. Isn't that beautiful? The best of the saint's comfort begins when his life ends, and we think that all the comfort is here, and we're so prone to think, I have to have this, and I don't want to miss that, and I've got to hold on to this, I don't want to lose that. And Paul says, listen, I don't know if I'm going to live or die, but for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. I'm torn between the two. But honestly, I desire to depart. I desire to be with Christ. Why, Paul? Why would you desire that? Because it's far better. It's far better. I want to be with Christ. I want to be with Him. The Christian who loves Jesus longs to be with Jesus. So death is merely a door that brings us into his presence. It's a case study of of Paul's theology worked out, what he's talking about in 2 Corinthians, what he applies into 2 Corinthians 4, in 2 Corinthians 5, and it's demonstrated here in Philippians 1. That Paul's confidence is in Christ, his longing is for Christ. He would rather be with Christ, but it doesn't change the fact, for Paul, it doesn't change the fact that we groan in this life. We experience the burdens of life in a fallen world. It's what he wrote about. Remember Romans 8? He he wrote about how all creation groans together in the pains of childbirth. But you know, he he says it's not just creation. He says it's not only the creation, but we ourselves who had the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. We groan inwardly as we eagerly await for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. He says, for in this hope we are saved. A hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. Paul has hope in Christ. He hopes in his return. He hopes in the confidence, the promises of Christ. He hopes in the promise that he will be taken to be with him. It's this groaning. But this groaning It is accompanied by hope. How does that work out? Well, it's been compared or explained that it's similar to this this groaning we experience that's coupled with a hope in Christ. It's it's similar to the, the lady who's in childbirth, who's groaning through the agony and the difficulty, the pains of childbirth. But ladies, you know the joy, the anticipation of that child, the hope of a life that awaits, the beauty that fills your mind, that you joyfully go through the pain, the agony, and the difficulty. Why? Because the hope awaits. 
It's the groaning that we experience under the sin of life, the difficulty of life, but our burdens of this present life are overwhelmed by the hope we have in eternity. The hope of eternal life with Christ is greater. Now look at verse 5. Verse 5 is the verse that God just really used in my life this week and encouraged me with, built me up. It says, He who has prepared for us this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. This this hope he's talking about, this this whole idea that that I'm in a a temporary mortal body, this tent that God has prepared for me, a building, a house not made with hands but eternal in the heavens. He talks about this groaning we have now in our present dwelling. But then he talks about how this, this longing that we would not be found naked, that, that while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened so that we would be, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that, with, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Paul's talking about death and, and this intermediate state or the present heaven. We're there, separated from body, in the presence of Christ. But then in verse 5, he who prepares us for this thing, for, prepares us for eternity, prepares us to be swallowed up by life, is God. So God has prepared us for the place he has prepared for us. You see that? God prepares us. Do you remember John 14, two weeks ago? Those of you who are here, we talked about God, Christ says, I have gone or I'm going to prepare a place for you. And we talked about what that is, what preparations that Christ makes. But here we see that the Savior who went to prepare a place for us in John 14, 3, also prepares us for the place that he has prepared. He's preparing us. It is all of God. It's all of God. It's not us. I'm not preparing myself. I haven't prepared a place. It's God and His good work. God has done what is necessary to make us fit for heaven. Well, what is that? What has He done? You can look back. You remember in, in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 10, it's 9 and 10, He's telling all these things, all these ways that we rebel against God and these, these, these just awful sins. It's kind of that list. You're like, oh, man, that's terrible. And it, it really describes all of us. We're terrible, right? We're sinful. But then in verse 11, he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. That is how he's prepared us. He has washed us, sanctified us, justified us by his work on the cross. And then Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 5 here, he says that he has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. He's given us the Spirit as a guarantee. How can we confidently know? How can we know for certain eternal things? Because He has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. This is something Paul speaks frequently of. Two examples, 2 Corinthians 1.22, the beginning of the book. He says, It is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put His seal on us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee, as a good deposit, as a trust. In Ephesians 1, Verse 13 and 14, he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance. He's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Spirit is a guarantee. And believers, he's a guarantee because God only gives the Holy Spirit to 
believers. Only to believers. John 14, 17 is your reference there. And we can be certain of this, that the Spirit accomplishes exactly what the Father purposes to be accomplished. So believers, the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is a certain deposit, is a guarantee of the inheritance that you have in Christ, that the presence of Jesus, the presence of God, awaits us upon death. That is something we should hope in. Look at verse 6, 2 Corinthians 5, 6. What is the result then of this certain knowledge that Paul has? He's confident of this. He knows it. What's the result of it? The knowledge of being in the presence of Christ at death fuels courageous faith. He says, so we are always of good courage. Why? Because at death, you're going to be met by the King of Kings. You're going to be in the presence of the one who created all things and in whom all things hold together. We can be confident, just as Paul is confident, that we should always have courage in every situation, in every trial of life. We can respond as Paul. I know this, so I am of good courage. And it's not because of me, it's not because of what I can accomplish, but it's because of Christ and all that he has accomplished. But why is that so? Because Paul tells us, he says, listen, here's the deal. To be away from the body is to be present with Christ. To be present with Christ. Verses, the end of verse 6, on to verse 8. We learn this truth that while we're here on earth, in bodily form, we're here, living life. He says that we are away from the Lord. We are away from the actual presence of the Lord. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, right? We're not alone, but we're away from the actual presence of God. But at death, we immediately go into the actual presence of the Lord. That's verse 8, right? Verse 8 says, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We know that when, upon death, we are with Christ. A commentator, theologian, George Guthrie, explains it well. He explains it like this. He says, this does not mean that Paul doubts the presence of Christ through the Spirit in the believer's life upon death, or prior to death, I'm sorry. Rather, believers have a relationship with Christ that will change both spatially and qualitatively at death and will be consummated the resurrection of the dead. He's saying it's not that we don't have the presence of Christ through the Spirit in our life today. We do. But our relationship with Him is going to change spatially and qualitatively. It is going to get better. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. It's gain. It will be better. We have everything to look forward to. Everything to look forward to. It's, as we talked about last week, it's this whole idea of present heaven and future heaven, or some people say the intermediate state and the final state. It's the idea that, that upon death, we are disembodied. You all in here, for the most part, have been to funerals. And you've seen that. You know and you understand that at a funeral, the, the casket is there, and we see this earthly tent. But we understand, according to Scripture, that to be... Away from the body is to be with Christ. To be with Christ. There is this time where, you might say we're disembodied. But we await the day of Christ's return. 
Paul, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, kind of clearing up this whole idea and helping them better understand what was going on here. And he says, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, those who have died, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. He's talking about the, the resurrection, right? The resurrection of believers at the coming of Christ, the return of Christ. For with this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel. With the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive or left, who are left, will be caught up together with Him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And Paul says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another. We grieve upon death, but we do not grieve as those who do not have hope, because we hope in Christ, the finished work of Christ that we are in the presence of God upon death. To be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. And by way of answering questions that I'm sure some of you have, we don't have time to dig deep into this, but every indication of Scripture is that on that day we will have the same recognizable bodies, but they will be glorified. The indication of Scripture is that that, that will be swallowed up by life, but it will not be something new given. You, you can put as a cross-reference to look into Further, 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44, where Paul talks about that which is perishable being clothed or raised imperishable. It's the idea we talked about again. We're having to look back on, on present or past weeks, but redemptive continuity, right? That there is continuity in our body. That God doesn't just destroy it and make you someone different. There, no one's going to recognize. The indications in the scripture would point us to say, you know, we are going to be recognizable. We see examples of that in Christ and his resurrection, walking among the disciples, even at the transfiguration, the fact that Elijah and Moses are recognizable. We see those things. It's an indication of the scripture would be not that it's something discontinued and new given, but something that is continued, but is redeemed, restored, renewed by the power of God as he makes all things new. And about this, in verse 7, Paul says, we walk by faith, not by sight. We walk by faith, not by sight. Our faith is in Him. Our faith is in what He has said and what He has promised. And we trust that and we walk and live according to that. Perhaps as a side note there, we should just say one reason we walk by faith and not by sight is because no one dies and goes to heaven and then returns to tell us what it was like. That's not biblical either. A lot of bestseller books might have it in there. That's not the precedent and teaching of Scripture. God has revealed to us what we need to know. It's appointed for man to die once, and then to face judgment. Not to die, take a tour, come back, and write a book about it. Verse 8. Kind of wrapping up, verse 8, we see that being in the presence of the Lord at death is not merely something Paul knows, right? It's not just something he knows. What is it in verse 8? It's something he longs for. It's something he longs for. He says that we would rather be away from the body at home 
with the Lord. So we are of good courage. He says we would rather, it's something we long for, something we want. We have this eager expectation of being with Christ. It doesn't mean, again, it doesn't mean that he wants to die. It doesn't mean that Paul's walking around going, man, I just hope somebody takes me out today. Paul doesn't have a death wish. It's just simply that Paul realizes that being in the presence of Christ is far greater than anything this life could offer. We don't walk around with a death wish because we're created for life. Death is not natural. We're created for life, so we long to live. But Paul understands that in this longing to live, when death comes, this is just the doorway to eternal life. I would rather be there. I long for that. I want to be with God. Christian, we have everything to gain in Christ. Everything to gain in Christ upon death. And nothing to lose. Nothing to lose. That's why Paul says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for it's far better. So how does this influence your life? Let me just close this with two ways. Two ways this influenced our life. One, I know there are people here who are grieving the loss of a loved one. I, I know as we gather, we grieve the reality that we've lost loved ones. We miss them. But hope in the presence of Christ means that we know that those who die in Christ are with Christ. And therefore we have hope. We do grieve. Grief is appropriate. We grieve just like Jesus did in John 11. You see Jesus filled with sorrow, move deeply within Grieving over Lazarus. Even while he proclaims, I am the resurrection and the life. He grieves. But as Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We grieve with hope in Christ. The second way that I think this influences our lives today is this. Is facing the trials of life facing the difficulties of life, facing the difficult decisions of life, facing the burdens weighed down by sin, weighed down by the difficulties of life. But the reality that hope is in Christ, life eternal with Him, should be something that we never forget. That in the midst of the trials, we always know the promise of eternal life with Christ so the trials in our lives do not overshadow the reality of eternal life. Another sermon for another day. But this should remind us that when we treasure the things of the world more than we treasure Christ, then the prospect of death and being with Christ is bad news. But when we treasure Christ more than the things of this world, Then we with Paul say to live is Christ, to die is gain. In the midst of trials, we say with Paul, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Let's pray.